Good morning. You may have a seat. I'm going to pop the lights on here. Thanks for joining us this morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And I was, I was thinking about that song. Um, when we, uh, a few years ago, started to talk about what it would look like to have a Soma church here in Northwest Indianapolis, one of the things that we talked about is that we want to be a church that is a neighborhood church, that we bring that love that we just sang about, the, the knowledge and the experience of God's love for us into our neighborhoods, where we live, where we work, where we play, the people that we live our lives with. And a big part of that is recognizing that if we wanted to be a neighborhood church, if that's our desire, if that's what we believe that God has called us to be, which we do, then that means that we need to be a church that actually reflects our neighborhood. People, incomes, experiences, backgrounds. This is one of the most diverse areas of our city. And so if we want to be an expression of God's kingdom here in this place, that means that we need to look like the people that God has put here. And so a big part of that is understanding that diversity and understanding that we're coming from different backgrounds, we're coming from different experiences, different cultural expressions of worship and what it means to be a part of a church. And we also understand that that sounds great and that so many people talk about diversity and and how great that is, but when you actually get into the nitty-gritty of that, we realize it's really difficult, right? It's really difficult when you have different people together doing something really significant. It's difficult when you think about all of the different backgrounds that we are bringing into this church body. We know that there's going to be friction. We know there's going to be misunderstanding. We know that there are things that we have to overcome, culturally speaking, societally speaking, in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity that God has called us into as believers in Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways that we have begun to move forward in that is that a few weeks ago, we started a, uh, a regular meeting of, of uh, discussion meeting, uh, a Bible study meeting, where we, uh, some people in our church, those of you have come together and said, we want to sit with other people who are different from us. We want to figure out and we want to talk about what does it look like for us to be reconciled to each other? What does it look like for us to move forward in greater unity with each other? And so I want to invite uh, Tony and Sarah to come up. Um, they've been taking part of some of these initial discussions uh, with this racial reconciliation group, as we have called it. Um, and I just wanted you to get an opportunity to hear from them this morning. There's about some of the things they're talking about in this group, some of the things that they're learning, uh, some of the difficult things that, are, that they're working through as a people, um, and, and to give you a vision of what we, when we talk about racial reconciliation, what is it that we're talking about, and how are we beginning? to take some steps forward in that. So I know I've uh, kind of spoiled your introduction there a little bit, but if you could just introduce yourself, tell us what you do for work, and um, if you're part of a missional community, which one you guys attend. Okay. Um, again, my name is Tony Cross. I am a member here. I work for the state of Indiana as a state eligibility manager. 
Uh, pray for me. We just recently moved, and uh, my staff is, is uh, acting all weird and stuff like that. But I told them that we still get our, uh, our paycheck. So, all right. So, um, to go into explaining the pastor, going to explaining. Oh, yes. We are part of the Dunleavy Missional Community. I'm Sarah. Last name is Lala Thin. It's like you're singing. Lala Thin is in skinny. Um, I am part of the Greenbrier MC. And for work, I work for crew in HR. And so I get the privilege of hiring staff who work across the U.S., mostly in part-time positions, um, who are staff specifically within the city ministry that I work with, are reaching our cities like L.A., Indy, New York, in a variety of different ways. So to be a part of this group, uh, you guys had to commit up front to attending this group consistently for four months, a four-month commitment. Um, why did you want to be a part of a group like this? What, what drew you to being a part of these discussions? For me, I just want to be a part of that change. The part of change that I see as far as our, uh, what it says in the Word, that God does not have a respectful person, that we need to be, uh, go out in love. And so I just want to be a part of that, especially um, being in here uh, at Soma Northwest um, I understand that what we're trying to do, I understand the vision. So I just want to be a part of that vision. Um, so that's for me. For me, it was a process. Um, when the Gornicks began to open their home on a come-as-you-can basis, uh, I felt the Lord's like, hey, you need to go be a part of this. Um, and I remember coming, I think it was like the last Sunday that they had an open house, and I showed up in my seat here, and I thought, oh, Lord, I need to be a part of that. I wonder if they're meeting this week. But I've got a ton of th- other things I need to get done at home. Like, I already had. I'm a planner. I already had my schedule, um, which includes my Sunday nap. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, I'm sitting in, the, sitting in my seat, and I'm you know, like, okay, if they say at the end, if they mention it, and if they tell me where the address is, because I'm not sure where they're at again, I'll go. And sure enough, there was an announcement, there was an address, and so I went. And uh, I've read a few uh, books on racial reconciliation, Um, and I'm a reader, it's how I learn, there's nothing wrong with reading, but I needed that next step for me. And um, deep in my heart, what I love about what I get to do is that I believe that there will be a day where every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and it is going to be gorgeous. And I want to experience more of that here. That's good. So can, uh, amen. Um, can you guys just give us a little picture about how these discussions are going? What, what are the things that you have been talking about? What are some of the topics that have come up? Um, and especially last Sunday, I know you guys had a really good, intense discussion. Um, can you just give us a picture of what these discussions look like and what you're talking about? Um, you got to understand that in this group, it, it is a very diverse group, um, married individuals, single, and, and we are coming here to try to get an understanding on how our society is. And you have to also understand that we, we relate a lot with history on what have been told, so they have very different narrative. And then what we do is we're reading a book, 
Um, and then we try to take some different excerpts out of that, and then we try to maybe go a little bit, a little bit deeper into explaining what are our thoughts and different things of that nature. Uh, and we also are reading, uh, listening to a podcast called Uncivil, so giving some different types of um, um, stories, uh, telling, and then we try to um, explain that and just say what are our thoughts, what are our feelings upon that. Uh, and in addition to that, there's the, um, how to explain it? You ever had that when your brain just goes completely blank? Um, it's really fun if you're in front of a lot of people. Uh, it's, so it's a space for, for me, I'm coming into it. And, you know, I, to know my background is to know my story, and so I won't uh, tell you to hear, but you can ask me about it. Uh, like, I really strive for comfort. That's my thing. I grew up in a very uncomfortable home environment growing up, and I'm striving for comfort. And I come into this discussion, and it's really discomforting for me because a lot of my comfort is around how we tell our history um, and where I feel like I can belong in our nation. And... Uh, I was just reading today in my devotional book that, you know, the Lord will take us in this place of comfort, and then he'll take us out of that comfort, and he'll put us in discomfort. That's where I'm at, and that's what was beautiful about last week for me of just coming and going, okay, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm really in a discomfort moment here. Um, But it's so good. It's so good because the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring you a new comfort. I'm going to bring you a new, my vision, my, what I have for you. And uh, as I connected with Tony and with others in the group, and I was vulnerable about where I was at, what I was met with was the love of Christ. They have committed to loving me as Christ loves me. I don't need to be afraid of how discomforted I am and what I'm wrestling with because they have committed to loving me with like the love of Christ. And I'm like, I'm home. Amen. And that's really, as we frame up this discussion, we, we recognize that like this is part of growth. Part of growth is being uncomfortable. Part of growth is being put in a situation where we're forced to recognize things about ourselves that maybe just if our own eyes are on ourselves or even people that are really similar to us are, are the only people that we're around, there are things about us that we just won't see. Uh, and this is a great space and a great discussion to bring those things into the light, to have other people point things out in our lives, to be able to, to, to kind of go on a, a self-discovery guided by the Holy Spirit to recognize who am I? What has God called me to? And what does it look like for me to be a part of a church family where our relationships are not superficial, but they're deep and they're real and they're authentic? And as Sarah said, you know, the whole point of this is not to condemn. It's not to shame. It's not to call out. It's not to make people feel bad about who they are because it's all done in the context of, hey, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are bonded together because of the love of God. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, and this discussion is just a first step. You know, for some of us, we just need to be able to talk about this in a safe space, to ask questions, to learn about ourselves. But this is not the end of it. 
Uh, it's the not, it is not the end of it, of just sitting around and talking, but we hope that out of this discussion, it, we will be able to take more steps, deeper steps in connecting with one another, building deeper relationships with each other, and then moving out into the community as people of peace, because we understand each other and we recognize the peace that we share in Christ. So thank you guys for filling us in. We'll give you some more updates as we go along, but we appreciate your courage in stepping into this space and also giving us an update. So thanks. So last week, we began a new series on Sunday mornings uh, in the book of Exodus the book of Exodus. And we have just come out through the month of January where we had been in a little mini-series where we're dealing with spiritual formation. What does it look like for us as the people of God to be formed and shaped by God, acknowledging that we live in a world that through media and technology and uh, our workplaces and our families and our friendships, that we are constantly being shaped. We are constantly being influenced. So as the people of God, in the kingdom of God, living life with God under the rule of God? What does it look like for us to be shaped primarily by God? That when we look at ourselves, when we look at the world around us, when we think about our relationship with Jesus Christ, what does God say? How does his power move in us and through us. And so as we moved out of that particular uh, mini-series where we dealt with Sabbath, what does it look like for the people of God to rest, to rest and to experience the grace of God in resting and quieting ourselves to be with him? As we move out of that and start coming into the book of Exodus, we see some of those same themes as we enter into the book of Exodus. And what we saw last week is that the book of Exodus, like a lot of the other Old Testament books, are trying to teach the people of God, and then by extension, years later, us sitting here on a Sunday morning uh, in 2019, that there is one true God, that there is one God, and that that God is one. So what does it mean for us as people to live with that knowledge? What does it mean for us as the people of God to live with the knowledge of who God is? And what we saw last week as we looked kind of over out in front of the book of Exodus, what we're going to see, what we're going to learn, uh, we talked about two different things. We talked about that, that number one, God is different than all the other gods. The book of Exodus portrays the God of Israel, Yahweh, as being different from all the other gods of the nations around them. And he's different in two ways. Number one, he is powerful. He is a powerful God who is able to deliver his people. And number two, he is a personal God that desires to dwell with his people. He is a powerful God who is able to save and deliver his people, which he will. And he is a personal God who desires to dwell with his people, which he will. We saw, secondly, that the book of Exodus is connected to the book in front of it, Genesis. That it's a connection, it's a, it's a connection to that story. That the Israelites have been living in the land of Egypt. They've been multiplying. They've been increasing 
in number, and they are fulfilling the promise, the blessing that God gave their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he promised to make them a great nation, a nation that that will speak to the glory of God. And as we approach chapter one in the book of Exodus, we see that that's happening that they are living in the land of Egypt and they are growing, they are multiplying, they are turning into this great nation. But what we saw is that as they are growing and multiplying, all is not well. All is not well. That there's dark days in Egypt. Those were dark days in Egypt. That there was a new Pharaoh, a new king who had come to rule the nation of Egypt. And in this nationalistic fervor, this Pharaoh begins to see these outsiders living in his land as a threat. As a threat. And he begins to fear that they will become more powerful and greater than the Egyptians themselves. And he implements this systematic plan to curb their growth, to keep them in subjugation through slavery, through infanticide, through murder. This was a real thing that happened. These were real people living in a real time and in a real place. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites living in Egypt. You are oppressed. You have no rights. You've experienced the trauma of becoming slaves. You're living in fear every day of death. You're living with the grief, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, of your sons being ripped from their families and murdered. No value of life. No security. No future. This is a tragic, desperate, hopeless situation for these people. The passage that we're going to look at this morning at the beginning of Exodus 2 is set against this dark backdrop of chapter 1. Because in the midst of Pharaoh's genocidal madness, one child survives. So if you turn with me there to Exodus chapter 2, if you're using one of the blue Bibles around you, you'll find that on page 26. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible Please take that as our gift to you this morning. Let me start by reading the first four verses of Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
There's a significance as we are going to read through these first 10 verses of chapter 2. There's a significance in the way that this was written and the language that was used. There's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of foreshadowing here that we're going to pull out. And it's really cool to see uh, the connections that the writer is making with the birth story of this one child to a bigger story. That this one child, his birth, the circumstances surrounding his birth is a symbol it is, it is telling us about something that's bigger going on, a bigger story that this one particular story is connected to. And we see that right at the beginning because it's curious that we don't hear and it's not mentioned the name of his parents. We don't know who his, his parents were uh, here at the beginning. We'll find that out later in a few chapters um, a few chapters ahead, but we don't get the names of his parents. We see that he has a sister, but she just shows up in verse four. Uh, we read later on in the book of Exodus that, that Moses, this child, has a brother, uh, but there's no mention of a brother here. And yet the writer takes the pains of telling us what tribe this child comes from, the lineage that this child has, that he was a Levite. He was, his parents were from the tribe of Levi. And as we move through the book of Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, we will see and learn that God chooses people from this tribe, Levites, as priests, to be the spiritual leaders of his people. And so what the writer is allowing us to see here and wants us to remember is that this child, this child is part of that heritage, that this child is part of that lineage, that he is a Levite, that he's a Levite, and from him, from his tribe, God will choose men to spiritually lead his people. So when he was born, the writer tells us that his mom looks at him and she saw that he was a fine child. And that's some interesting language, uh, curious language there. But if you look in the Hebrew, when this was written, you will see that that word translated fine is also translated good. And when you read it in the language, it says, she saw that he was good. If you remember last week, we saw in chapter 1, that the writer uses words and phrases to connect what he's writing in the present to the story of Genesis in the past, the creation story. And we see that again right here, that as she looks at this child that God has given her, she sees that it was good. Just as when God created, he saw that it was good. And we are reminded, we are brought back that to a beginning, to a creation. And what we are going to see through this book of Exodus is that the birth of this child marks a new beginning for the people of God, a new creation for God's people. She sees this child because of the fear that she has that this child is going to be taken from her, that it's this child is going to be killed. She devises this plan to hide the child. And so she makes this basket, which is the same word in Genesis chapter 6 translated 
ark. The same word. She makes this basket, this little ark, and she places her son in this and puts the ark in the river. And what we begin to see here, there's some parallels to that flood story in Genesis chapter 6. Both the ark in Genesis 6 and this basket were sealed with this bitumen pitch. Both Noah in Genesis 6 and this child were spared from a watery death. Both Noah and this child are used by God to deliver to God a new people for his purpose. And so what we continue to see are those themes of creation and redemption that are weaved through, woven through this passage here at the beginning of Exodus. Let's move on into verse 5 of chapter 2. So she places this basket, this baby in the basket, this basket in the river Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked, young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This child seems to have dodged a bullet for the moment. His mom figures out this plan, devises this plan to hide her son from this madness that is going on. And who of all people discovers this child hidden in this basket, in the reeds, in this river, but Pharaoh's own daughter? But for whatever reason, unlike her father, she sees this baby and she has pity on him. She knows. She knows what's going on. She knows the circumstances. She knows what her father is trying to do. But she sees this baby and she has compassion. And we read on in verse 10. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So big sister seizes this opportunity, jumps up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, hey, I've got a plan here. I see that you like this child. I may happen to know of a Hebrew woman that uh, could help you out here, that could nurse this child on your behalf, that could raise this child up through its infancy, and then we'll give it back to you. And Pharaoh's daughter says, well, that sounds like a great plan. You take this child, this womp, find this woman. She will nurse this child for me. And I will even pay her to nurse this child. This is amazing. Think about the improbable series of events that are going on here. Mom puts a baby in a basket, 
floating in the river, the same river in which others like him are dying. Pharaoh's daughter, the same Pharaoh who's hell-bent on destroying every Hebrew male child, finds him, feels sorry for him, and puts him under her protection. Then she pays the child's biological mother to do the job that this woman would have done anyway, and then she adopts this child as a member of the royal family. Only God could orchestrate events like this. And last week what we saw is that God's present even when he seems absent. And God is in control even when all the events and circumstances in our lives tell us otherwise. And that's what's going on here. We see God working. We see God moving. We see God orchestrating his plan and moving it forward. God was in full control of this child's birth and the circumstances that threaten this child's life. What we see is that God doesn't remove the child from harm's way. God doesn't strike down Pharaoh because he's in opposition to God's plan. That will come later. But instead, what we see here is that God puts this child in the same river that this child otherwise would have been killed in. God brings this child, who would have been ripped from his family in death, into Pharaoh's family. And God sets this child in a position to learn the inner workings of the Egyptian government and to see firsthand the oppression of his people. What we read here is that God, the God of Israel, defeats Pharaoh at his own game. He strikes right at the heart of what Pharaoh perceived to be his power and his strength and his control over the situation. And honestly, to add insult to injury, even the child's name is a testimony to God's plan. She named him Moses because I drew him out of the water. In the midst of darkness and evil, Moses is drawn out. In the midst of suffering and despair, God will use Moses to draw his people out of Egypt. This is a pattern of behavior with God. When you read throughout the Old Testament, you will see that a birth of a child plays a huge role in God's plan of redemption. Think about what we talked about a few minutes ago, the promises that were made in the book of Genesis to Abraham where God called Abraham out of his home, away from his family, and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. I'm going to make your family and the, the descendants that come from you a great nation. But what we read is that decades after that promise, Abraham looks around and he still doesn't have a son. He has no child. And then God shows up and gives his wife, who had been barren up to that point, a son, and they name him Isaac. If you move forward in 
you get into the book of Judges, you will see that the Israelites, God's people, are being oppressed. They're being uh, put under the thumb of their enemies called the Philistines. And God gives a barren woman a child, and she names him Samson. And though that child is flawed and imperfect and has a lot of issues, God eventually uses Samson to bring his judgment against Israel's enemies and, and put Israel back into a place of peace and prosperity. And you, if you move forward, you run into a woman named Hannah who was also praying for a child, who didn't have a child, desperately wanted to have a child. And she prays to God and God finally gives her a son who she names Samuel. And this son will grow up to serve the Lord. He will become one of the last judges of Israel and become the first prophet to anoint the first king of Israel. And Samuel will spend his life directing the people of God continuously back to who God is. And then as we saw during the Advent season, when you move into the book of Isaiah, you see that God's people again are under attack. Again, they are facing oppression from the outside. And this time they have a wicked king who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe that God's gonna show up. And God shows up and says, to prove to you that I am with you, I am going to give a virgin a son and you're going to name him Emmanuel. Because God is with you. We see this pattern over and over again. The situations are different. The, the, the seasons of life in Israel are different. But the pattern is the same. And we know that this pattern ultimately culminates in the birth of another child. A child that comes from another virgin. And like Moses this child was born into a time when God's people were walking in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. A child just like Moses who escaped the murderous schemes of another wicked king. A child just like Moses whose name means to deliver, to save Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. We see over and over and over again. And Moses is another one in a line of these symbolic births that prepare God's people for their ultimate deliverer, for their ultimate savior to come. Moses is what we call a type of Jesus Christ. His life, who he was, what he did, it has significance in preparing God's people for their Messiah, for their Savior, for their Deliverer who will ultimately come. And as we read through the book of Exodus, we will continue to see this, that Moses' life, his actions, the way that he leads his people, the way that he intercedes for his people with God, symbolic of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Like the events in Moses' life, we see through Jesus that God chooses to work his plan of redemption in less than obvious ways. In less than obvious ways. What we see is that through Jesus, this child, 
who was not born a king, but was born in a cattle stall, who did not grow up in a royal family, but grew up in a no-name town as the son of a carpenter. This king who did not demand that people follow him and give him honor as a king, but lived his life as an itinerant preacher, going from town to town to town, saying that he doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't live in a royal palace, but he relied on the kindness and the generosity of others. This child who grew up to be a man, who suffered the death of a criminal instead of being crowned as a king. This man who said that I am the son of God and everybody is looking around and saying, well, then deliver us. Use your power. Deliver us from the hand of the Roman occupiers. Bring us this kingdom that we have been promised for thousands of years And yet this man who hung on a cross and people look around and say, is this what we've been promised? Is this the kind of ruler? Is this the kind of king that we've been waiting for? We see that God continues to work his plan of redemption through less than obvious means. Because Jesus defeated death. Not by avoiding death, but by enduring it. Jesus defeated death precisely because he endured death. And I think too frequently we can believe that God works his plan despite evil, despite suffering, despite pain and despair. When what we see in the life of Moses in Jesus' life, throughout the scriptures, even in our own experiences, is that God most often chooses to work through dark circumstances, not despite them, through the darkness and the evil, not avoiding them. The good that God has promised to work for his people is not just some kind of energy shot that we need to keep going, but it's ultimately full and final redemption, that we are brought out of our sin, but we are also formed and shaped in the life that God has given us to save us, to shape us into people who look more and more like Jesus Christ. And as with Moses and the people of Israel, Their deliverance came through suffering, not despite it. The focus of this passage here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is on the birth of one child. But what we have to remember and what we have to sit with is that one child was saved, but thousands and thousands of others weren't. Other children died. And it's easy to just read a passage like this and jump straight to Jesus and his redemption of our sins and bringing us out of our sins. And and that is true. And like I mentioned, that there are symbols of that all throughout this story. And when we as people on this side of it look back, that's what we see. 
But we are in danger if we only do that of over-spiritualizing this whole thing and missing out on the fact that this kind of suffering was very real. It was very painful. It was visceral for these people going through it at that time. If we quickly move out of this story to Jesus, the Savior of sin, we miss, we miss the beautiful truth of Jesus, the suffering servant. We miss that. We miss it because Jesus gives life. Because he endured death, Jesus also gives comfort because he endured suffering. Jesus gives life because he endured death. Jesus can give us comfort in the midst of our suffering because he himself suffered. Israel's eventual deliverance from Egypt, their eventual freedom from slavery did not erase the pain and the sadness that they endured through all these years in Egypt. They mourned. They cried out. They prayed to God for escape. Their longing, their, their questioning, those intense doubts that, I, that they show over and over again, they, just, they didn't go away just because they were freed from slavery. Remember last week, even when God seems absent, he's not. Even when God seems to, lost, to have lost control, he hasn't. We want deliverance, but oftentimes we want it to be clear. We want it to be understandable. We want it to be clean. We're promised that we will see God's salvation full and final. But also, as we wait for that, we know that God will walk through our suffering with us. I can't explain why God allowed all of these children to die. I can't explain why God allowed his people to suffer all of these things that they suffered. Those are questions that I have no answer for. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask those questions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't wrestle with those questions. But ultimately, those questions put me in a place where I have to understand and I have to believe that God is God and I am not. That God chooses to work in ways that I don't understand because I can't see everything that God sees. I can't see the end. I can't see all of the things that will happen. I don't know why God chooses to work the way he does. I can't tell you that the pain and the suffering that, that God allows us to experience in our lives is anything but hard and, 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 and painful and causes grief and sadness because it does. To skip over those things and just say, but we're forgiven from sin, is to not see and understand the full picture, the full story, the full Savior that we see in Jesus Christ. Yesterday, my wife and I uh, went downtown um, to the Indiana Repertory Theater, and they're doing a, uh, a play, a rendition of The Diary of Anne Frank. And uh, it was a beautiful, um, yeah, it was just a beautiful thing. And I sat there, and, and 
I watched and I listened and I could not help but put myself in the shoes of that Frank family. Could not help thinking about what it was like to live every single day in fear that you would die. To have your whole life taken from you. I couldn't imagine what it would feel like to be a father, powerless and helpless, to protect your children. The pain and the suffering and the sorrow. I don't have context. I don't have categories for those things. Some of you are familiar with a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor who spoke out against the Nazis during World War II, who was imprisoned and ultimately who died at the hands of the Nazis. And I was reading in some of his letters that he wrote while in prison. And he wrote this. He says, Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. Man's religiosity makes him look in distress to the power of God in this world. We want to see God act. We want to see God move. We want to see his power strike down our enemies. But Bonhoeffer says the Bible directs us to God's powerlessness and God's suffering because only the suffering God can help. I don't know where you're at this morning. And I don't know what you're experiencing, what you have been experiencing. I don't know the grief or the pain that you're carrying around with you. And I'm not trying to be trite here. I'm not trying to slap a bumper sticker on this. But what we read out of the book of Exodus, what we will continue to see from this story of God and his people is that God loves his people, that God cares for his people, that God will deliver his people. But remember, God also desires to be present with his people, that he is with us as we walk through this life. He is with us on the long road of our redemption and our deliverance. And while we take a ton of comfort and hope and victory in the fact that we know the end of the story, we have to live the story now. And in the midst of that, we can know that Jesus is our Savior, but that Jesus is also a servant who comes to us in love, who comes to us with comfort, who comes to us with hope, because he is the God who is here, and he is the God who has suffered. And because he, can, he has suffered, he offers comfort to each one of us. That doesn't negate his plan. That doesn't negate, negate what he will do in the end. But it shows us that we have a God who is approachable, and a God who is not far off, but who is intimately involved in our lives, even when we don't have all the answers, even when we don't have all of the, the clarity that we desire, we know that God is powerful to save and that God is present and near to us in our weakness and our suffering. In a moment, as we take communion, Brother Tony will be over here. And if you would just like someone to talk to, 
um, to pray with you, to just pray over you. Please go and, and talk with Tony. I want to invite you to come to this time that we call communion. We call it communion because during this time as a symbol, it shows us and it reminds us that we are one with Christ through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that as we remind ourselves of that oneness, we also recognize that we are one with each other. That those of us who share in faith in Jesus share in life together. And that you do not have to walk through life alone. That God's presence with you is often made manifest through friends and other people he sends around you. And I just want to encourage you to find someone here, to talk with them afterwards. If you need to grab coffee or lunch this week, just to let someone else in to share the burden, to help shoulder your burden, to speak words of encouragement, or to just be there and be present. That's what God has called us to be as a community, that as those who have shared in the oneness, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we share that life with each other. And so I want to invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, to come, to take a piece of bread, to dip it in the juice, knowing that God is powerful to save, and he is also present to comfort. Let me pray. God, we, and I pray that we would be a, a people here who live with hope, a hope that doesn't just try to erase life or erase all of the hard things and the painful things, but I pray that you would make us into a community of people who share in hope together by shouldering each other's burdens by praying for each other, by lifting each other up, by coming underneath to support each other, serving one another, laying our lives down for each other. And God, I do pray that as we experience that, as you bond our community together, that we would be a light to this city, that we would be people of peace, that we would be people that offer hope and comfort that we would be people that others see not as folks who are holding up an arm saying, no, you can't come, but a community of people, as Jesus did, that looked out and saw the harassed and the helpless and said, come. Come know Jesus. Come know the hope and the life that is found in him. Would God please use us? Please use us. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You're too big for error. You're too wise for mistakes. You are a mighty God, perfect in all.